Chapter twenty nine of The Wanderer or Female Difficulties. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Wanderer or Female Difficulties by Fanny Burney. Chapter twenty nine. Ellis, for some minutes, hardly knew whether to be most provoked or diverted by this singular visit but all that approached to amusement was short-lived the most distant apprehension that her probity could be arraigned was shocking and she determined to dedicate the evening to calculating all that she had either to pay or to receive and sooner to leave herself destitute of every means of support but such as should arise from day to day than hazard incurring any suspicion injurious to her integrity these estimates which were easily drawn up afforded her at once a view of her ability to satisfy her creditors and of the helpless poverty in which she must then remain herself her courage nevertheless rose higher from the conviction that her honour would be cleared she was thus employed when late in the evening miss arbe full dressed and holding her watch in her hand ran upstairs i have but a quarter of an hour she cried to stay so don't let us lose a moment i am just come from dining at lady kendover's and i am going to an assembly at the sycamores but i thought i would just steal a few minutes for our dear little liar you can give me your answer you know as i am going downstairs come quick my dear miss ellis tis such a delight to try our music together my answer madam cried ellis surprised i had hoped for yours and as you will probably meet all the ladies to whom you have had the goodness to mention me at miss sycamore's i entreat i am so dreadfully hurried cried she unrolling her music that i can't say a word of all that now but we'll arrange it and you can tell me how you like our plan you know as i am putting up my music and going but we can't possibly play the harp while i am drawing on my gloves and scampering downstairs this logic which she felt to be irrefutable she uttered with the most perfect self-complacency while spreading her music and placing herself at the harp but once there she would neither say nor hear another word and it was equally in vain that ellis desired an explanation of the plan to which she alluded or an answer to the petition which she had written herself miss arbe could listen to no sounds but those produced by her own fingers and could balance no interests but those upon which she was speculating of the advantages which she should herself reap from these continual though unacknowledged lessons and ellis found all her painful difficulties how to extricate herself from the distresses of penury the horror of creditors and the fears of want treated as but minor considerations when put in competition with the importance of miss arbe's most trivial and even stolen improvement she saw however no redress displeasure was unnoticed distaste was unheeded and she had no choice but to put aside every feeling and give her usual instructions or to turn a professed protectress into a dangerous and resentful enemy she sat down therefore to her business the quarter of an hour was scarcely passed before miss arbe started up to be gone and giving her music to ellis to fold while she drew on her gloves cried 
Well, you can tell me now what I must say to Lady Kendover. I hope you like my scheme. Ellis protested herself utterly ignorant what scheme she meant. Bless me, she cried. Did not my cousin tell you what I've been doing for you? I've quite slaved in your service, I can assure you. I never made such exertions in my life. Everybody had agreed to give you up. It's really shocking to see how people are governed by their prejudices. But I brought them all round. For, after Lady Aurora's letter, they none of them could tell what to resolve upon, till I gave them my advice. That, indeed, is no unusual thing to happen to me. So few people know what they had best do. This self-eulogium, having elated her spirits, her haste to depart sufficiently slackened, to give her time to make a farther demand, whether her cousin had executed her commission. Ellis knew not even that he had had any to execute. "'Well!' she cried. "'That old soul grows more provoking every day. I have resolved a thousand times never to trust him again, only he is always at hand, and that's so convenient.' One does not know how to resist making use of him. But he really torments me more than anything existing. If he had literally no sense, one should not be so angry. But when it's possible to make him listen, he understands what one says well enough. And sometimes, which you will scarcely believe, he suddenly utter something so keen and so neat that you'd suppose him all at once metamorphized into a wit. But the fact is, he is so tiresomely absent, that he never knows what he does, nor hears what one says. At breakfast he asks whether there is nothing more coming for dinner. At dinner he bids his servant get ready his nightcap and slippers, because he shall eat no supper. If anybody applies to him for a pinch of snuff, he brings them an armchair. If they ask him how he does, he fetches his hat and cane, buttons his greatcoat up to his chin, and says he is ready to attend them. If they inquire what it is o'clock, he thanks them for their kindness, and runs over a list of all his aches and pains. And the moment anybody enters the room, the first word he commonly says to them is good-bye. Ellis earnestly begged to know what was meant by the letter of Lady Aurora. Miss Arb again declared herself too much hurried to stay, and spent more time in censuring Mr. Giles, for not having spared her such a loss of it, than would have been required for even a minute recital of the business which he had forgotten. Ellis, however, at length learnt that Miss Arb had had the address to hit upon a plan which conciliated all interests, and to which she had prevailed upon Lady Kendover to consent. "'Her layship's name,' she continued, "'with my extensive influence, will be quite enough to obtain that of everybody else worth having at Brighthelmstone.' and she was vastly kind indeed for though she did it she said with the extremest repugnance which to be sure is natural enough not being able to imagine who or what she serves yet in consideration of your being patronized by me she would not refuse to give you her countenance once more nothing in the world could be kinder you must go immediately to thank her unhappily madam answered Ellis, colouring, I have too many obligations of my own unrepaid to have the presumption to suppose I can assist in the acknowledgments of others, and this plan, whatever it may be, has so evidently received the sanction of Lady Kendover solely to oblige Miss Arb, that it would be folly, if not impertinence, on my part to claim the honour of offering her ladyship my thanks." Miss Arb, whose watch was always in her hand, when her harp was not, had no time to mark this discrimination. She went on, therefore, rapidly with her communication. 
Lady Kendover, she said, has asserted that if Miss Ellis had been celebrated in any public line of life, there would be less difficulty about employing her. But as she had only been seen or noticed in private families, it was necessary to be much more particular as to her connections and conduct, because, in that case, she must, of course, be received upon a more friendly footing, and with a consideration of confidence by no means necessary for a public artist. If, therefore, all were not clear and satisfactory, Ellis, with mingled spirit and dignity, here interrupted her. "'Spare me, madam, this preamble, for both our sakes, for though the pain it causes is only mine, the useless trouble, pardon me, will be yours. I do not desire, I could not even consent to enter any house where to receive me would be deemed a disgrace. Oh, but you have not heard my plan. You don't know how well it has all been settled. The harp professor now here, a proud, conceited old coxcomb, full of the most abominable airs, but a divine performer, wants to obtrude his daughter upon us in your place, though she has got so cracked a voice that she gives one the headache by her squeals. Well, to make it his interest not to be your enemy, I have prevailed with Lady Kendover to desire him to take you in for one of his band, either to play or sing at the great concert-room. Ellis, amazed, exclaimed, "'Can you mean, madam, can Lady Kendover mean, to propose my performing in public?' "'Precisely that. Tis the only way in the world to settle the business and conquer all parties.' "'If so, madam, they can never be conquered, for never, most certainly never, can I perform in public.' "'And why not? You'll do vastly well, I dare say. Why should you be so timid? Tis the best way to gain your admission into great houses, and if your performance is applauded, you'll have as many scholars as you like, and you may be as impertinent as you will. Your humility, now, won't make you half so many friends, as a set of airs and graces, then, will make you partisans.' "'I am much obliged to you for a recommendation so powerful, madam,' answered Ellis, dryly, "'but I must entreat you to pardon my inability to avail myself of it, and my frank declaration that my objections to this plan are unsuperable.' Miss Arb only treated this as an ignorant diffidence, scarcely worth even derision, till Ellis solemnly and positively repeated that her resolution not to appear in public would be unalterable. She then became seriously offended, and, slightly wishing her good-night, ran downstairs, without making any other answer to her inquiry, concerning the request in her note, than that she knew not what it meant, and could not stay another moment. Ellis, now, was deeply disturbed. Her first impulse was to write to Lady Aurora, and implore her protection. But this wish was soon subdued by an invincible repugnance to drawing so young a person into any clandestine correspondence. Yet there was no one else to whom she could apply. "'Alas!' she cried, "'how wretched a situation! And yet, compared with what it might have been! Ah, let me dwell upon that contrast! What then can make me miserable?' With revived vigour from this reflection, she resolved to assume courage to send in all her accounts, without waiting any longer for the precarious assistance of Miss Arb. But what was to follow? When all difficulty should be over with respect to others, how was she to exist herself? 
Music, though by no means her only accomplishment, was the only one which she dared flatter herself to possess with sufficient knowledge, for the arduous attempt of teaching what she had learnt. Even in this she had been frequently embarrassed. All she knew upon the subject had been acquired as a dilettante, not studied as an artist, and though she was an elegant and truly superior performer, she was nearly as deficient in the theoretical, as she was skilful in the practical part of the science of which she undertook to give lessons. Wide is the difference between exhibiting that which we have attained only for that purpose, from the power of dispensing knowledge to others. Where only what is chosen is produced, only what is practised is performed, where one favourite piece, however laboriously acquired, however exclusively finished, gains a character of excellence that, for the current day, and with the current throng, disputes the prize of fame, even with the solid rights of professional candidates. The young and nearly ignorant disciple may seem upon a par with the experienced and learned master, but to disseminate knowledge by clearing that which is obscure, and explaining that which is difficult, to make what is hard appear easy, by giving facility to the execution of what is obtruse to the conception, to lighten the fatigue of practice, by the address of method, to shorten what requires study, by anticipating its result, and while demonstrating effects to expound their cause, by the rules of art, to hide the want of science, and to supply the dearth of genius, by divulging the secrets of embellishments. These were labours that demanded not alone brilliant talents, which she amply possessed, but a fund of scientific knowledge, to which she formed no pretensions. Her modesty, however, aided her good sense, in confining her attempts at giving improvement within the limits of her ability. And rare indeed must have been her ill fortune, had a pupil fallen to her lot, sufficiently advanced to have surpassed her powers of instruction. But this art, the favourite of her mind, and in which she had taste and talents to excel, must now be relinquished. And drawing, in which she was also, though not equally, an adept, presented the same obstacles of recommendation for obtaining scholars as music. Her theatrical abilities, though of the first cast, were useless, since from whatever demanded public representation her mind revolted, and her original wish of procuring herself a safe and retired asylum, by becoming a governess to some young lady, was now more than ever remote from all chance of being gratified. "'How few!' she cried. "'How circumscribed are all the attainments of women!' And how much fewer and more circumscribed still are those which may, in their consequences, be useful as well as ornamental to the higher or educated class, those through which, in the reverses of fortune, a female may reap benefit without abasement, those which, while preserving her from pecuniary distress, will not aggravate the hardships or sorrows of her changed condition, either by immediate humiliation, or by what, eventually, her connections may consider as disgrace. Thus situated, she could have recourse only to the dull, monotonous, and cheerless plan, from which Miss Arb had turned her aside, that of offering her services to Miss Matson as a needlewoman.
her first step, upon this resolution, was to send back the harp to the music-shop. Since no further hope remained of recovering her scholars, she would not pay her court to Miss Arbe at the expense of Miss Vidal. She next dispatched her small accounts to Lady Candover, Lady Aramede, Miss Sycamore, Miss Brinville, the Miss Crawleys, and Miss Tedman. But notwithstanding her poverty, she desired to be allowed to have instructed Selina simply from motives of gratitude. To give up her large apartment was her next determination, and she desired to speak with Miss Matson, to whom she made known her intention, soliciting, at the same time, some employment in needlework. This was a measure not more essential than disagreeable. "'Mercy, ma'am!' Miss Matson cried, seating herself upon the sofa. "'I hope at least you won't leave my first floor before you pay me for it. And as to work, what is the premium you mean to propose to me?' Ellis answered that she could propose none. She desired only to receive and to return her work from day to day. Looking at her, now, with an air extremely contemptuous, Miss Matson replied that that was by no means her way, that all her young ladies came to her with some handsome premiums, and that she had already eight or nine upon her list, more than she was able to admit into her shop. Ellis, affrighted at the prospect before her, earnestly inquired whether Miss Matson would have the kindness to aid her in an application elsewhere, for some plain work. "'That, ma'am, is one of the things the most difficult in the world to obtain.' such loads of young women are out of employ that one's quite teased for recommendations besides which you are being known to have run up so many debts in the town you'll excuse me ma'am makes it not above half reputable to venture staking one's credit after all those droll things that mr riley you know ma'am said to miss bidle ellis could bear no more she promised to hasten her payment and begged to be left alone End of chapter 29 Recording by Roxana Nazari